Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van, but you can call me Mike. Today we'll be talking with Michitake Aso, an associate professor of history at SUNY Albany and author of Rubber and the Making of Vietnam, an Ecological History, 1897 to 1975. The book is part of the University of North Carolina Press's Flows, Migrations, and Exchanges series, devoted to, quote, new works of environmental history that explore the cross-border movements of organisms and materials that have shaped the modern world, as well as the varied human attempts to understand, regulate, and manage these movements. Rubber in the Making of Vietnam draws on Dr. Osso's research in Vietnamese, French, and English language sources from archives in Vietnam, France, United States of America, Cambodia, Singapore, and Switzerland as well as an impressive list of secondary sources. Just in terms of research, the book is quite an achievement, but it also offers a unique unique way of looking at 20th century Vietnamese history. Rubber and the Making of Vietnam also won the Henry A. Wallace Award from the Agricultural History Society. Congratulations. So, Mitch, welcome to New Books in History. Hi, Mike. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. Uh, It's a real pleasure to talk to you, and this is just a fantastic book and, and really great achievement in, in research. So just to start off, um, find out a little bit about you. Please tell us how you came to be a historian of Vietnam, and not just a historian of Vietnam, but a Vietnamese environmental history. How did you come to be an environmental historian? Well, probably the environmental uh, part of that equation uh, came first. I, I was an environmental engineering major at UC Berkeley as an undergrad with an interest in history. And in my junior year, I think it was many years ago now, uh, I took a a course with um, a historian named Carolyn Merchant, who is a well-known environmental historian. Uh, And I just found the topic fascinating. I really, really enjoyed the class. Um, I I was an environmental engineer uh, because of concerns about environmental issues and including 
climate change. And it struck me uh, after a couple of years uh, in the engineering uh, section of that portion of that, that actually one of the most impressive things to do was to convince people a, uh, that there were real problems and uh, to tell their their histories, uh, these environmental uh, issues. Now, I, I think that people have been doing excellent work on telling and, and getting the word out. But remember, this was the 1990s. So the I could say the national awareness of some issues like climate change was not as, as striking. Um, and at the same time that I was doing environmental engineering, I was also taking Japanese history courses, uh, which I was really enjoying. And then I, I would say what finally pulled me over to the dark side of history was the experience of teaching English in Vietnam for two years, um, right after I graduated uh, from college. And I did that with volunteers in Asia. And that uh, experience convinced me that Vietnam is a fascinating place. I, I kind of knew something about Vietnam. I was interested in Asia, um, but I had never had a, a course in Vietnamese history. And I was a self-taught Vietnamese language speaker before going there. So um was really a kind of big discovery for me about the, the details and, and the, the language and the culture there. Uh, so after I uh, finished that um, teaching experience, I thought of applying to graduate school. Now, of course, I wasn't a very uh, convincing candidate, perhaps, for Vietnamese history. So I hadn't majored in history as an undergraduate. Uh, but uh, I was lucky enough to get into University of Wisconsin's History of Science and Medicine program. And it turns out on hindsight, that was uh, probably the perfect place for me. Um, I was working with uh, an environmental historian and historian of medicine and science, Greg Mittman, uh, who uh, is now also doing some work on rubber. Um, also, I was working with uh, Warwick Anderson, who's a historian of medicine, who uh, wrote a, a pioneering book on uh, the history of colonial mess in the Philippines and uh, working with uh, Richard Keller, who's a historian of France and his colonies, who's written on environmental and medical history. So coming out of that experience, I really uh, got this idea of looking at um, environment and medicine uh, and working on Vietnam. And of course, Wisconsin is also a good place to do Southeast Asian history. So I was um, able to work with uh, Al McCoy and, and some other folks doing work on uh, Southeast Asian uh, history. And, and they were very open and very supportive of uh, my, my efforts in environmental history. Yeah, that, that's great. You could make those two programs within the university come together with the Southeast Asian studies, where they're so strong with Al McCoy, and also with the... Um, the environmental component. And that's also fascinating that you start with the environmental engineering base and then come to history. I think a number of us historians who do environmental issues started as historians and tried to learn the science and the and so forth on the fly. That's great. So I'm curious as to how you define environmental history. And I noticed that the book in the title declares itself to be an ecological history. Is there a difference between the two? Does the terminology matter? Is there is there a distinction here or yeah. Um, so uh, I, I will start, I guess, by talking with environmental uh, history and about environmental history and then explain um, why I decided to choose, in the end, ecological history as the subtitle. Um, 
So maybe, you know, for some of the listeners who aren't as uh, familiar with environmental history, they may think that rubber seems like a odd choice. It's, you know, rubber production and plantations are very much a, seen as a human endeavor. And you know, really the histories of rubber in Southeast Asia have been written for, for decades, treating plantations as human projects and, you know, analyze economics of rubber, the labor uh, relations or gender or anti-colonialism, all really uh, human endeavors. Um, there's also been some work on rubber that's looked at um, consumption. Uh, and so I think here of Stephen Harp's work uh, on consumption of rubber in France, was Marketing Michelin, great book. Um, but I wanted to build my book around, um, well, to, to take into account both humans and non-human nature, Including the rubber tree, which uh, you know, as you as you know, it's, it grows wild in the Amazon, so very much a part of non-human nature there. Um, but also the soils, the animals, the plasmodia that surround this tree, and um, the only the you know, major example of that kind of work for rubber when I started graduate school is uh, Warren Dean wrote a book called uh, Brazil and the Struggle of Rubber, and he called it an environmental history. Um, and, you know, he was one of the early uh, pioneers and really kind of set a, a model to work with and, uh, you know, against. Um, Ann Stoller's book on rubber labor in uh, Southeast Asia, of course, was another book that was I was thinking a lot about, but she doesn't do as much with, with environment. Yeah, that's much more focused on labor and, and empire and post-colonial Absolutely. Yeah. gender things like things mm-hmm. like that she mm-hmm. that she's known for great great book this the first book and i think perhaps the least cited of all her works but i i think it's fantastic yeah in some ways the the, the most um specific <laughs> less least theoretical but but also and, and riveting um for me um but uh you know in in um uh, Vietnamese studies, uh, it's it, it, in kind of thinking about the environment is is growing, and so um, what I wanted to do was build on the work of uh, some folks who have who've come before, um, of course, David Biggs, uh, Pierre Brochu in France, Philip Taylor in Australia, uh, who have done things for the Mekong Delta, uh, Pam McElwee, uh, Frederic Thomas for forests. Um, and then uh, we also have some younger scholars, uh, Hugh Fung and, and uh, uh, Katie Deet, who are doing some some really interesting stuff. But you know, no one had um, uh, done much with rubber, so I thought Look, this is a it's a a good field uh, to look at. And then the and, and you know just to, just to interject, the, um, Ben Kiernan's uh, newer a huge survey of Vietnamese history. Um, has quite a bit of environmental history in there. I was really impressed with that. Yeah, that's right. I think he he set out to uh, to include environmental history as as a as a focus. And I I think what um, you know this is where I think that uh, the environmental historians in Vietnam are are going to uh, move towards. And I mean, there's a range of things they can do, but uh, of course, writing the histories of uh, animals or the histories of uh, forests or water flows are, you know, is all ecosystems, very important. Um, 
The history but of rats. One, you? Yeah. The history of rats, absolutely, and <laughs> and 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 plague, right? I mean, this is this is. Um, but you're, but you know, you're, you're reader. I'm shamelessly plugging my own book, but. <laughs> but but your your work, and and I think uh, yes, you know, both the article and and the uh, the recent uh, book, um, I think uh, actually moves more towards the environmental history that I studied at Wisconsin. And that's being done, I think, much more in American environmental history, which is uh, incorporating environment, uh, environmental history into more established fields of study, right? So uh, yeah. labor or uh, the study, historical studies of race or uh, colonialism, nationalism. I think those, uh, I think those subfields need to take into account environment. And I, I just, that's what I think that environmental history can really help to reframe uh, our understandings of Vietnam uh, and Vietnamese history uh, in, in many different fields. So it's not, I don't want to be, uh, think of uh, environmental history in a very narrow way and, and kind of, uh, you know, limit it to just what's considered non-human in, in Vietnam. I think it's more than that. And that's not, you know, that's more of a natural history, right? And And people have done right. natural histories but um the, i think environmental history has a, an important role to play here yeah that's, that's a really really great point and um you know it should be one of the categories in, of analysis like gender like class like race that we we work into our studies yeah now the the question of ecological is um the one that i was thinking about for a long time and you know, it's as you know, it's very hard to come up with titles and subtitles for books. Uh, you, 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 I don't know how you did your, it. But... Your chapter titles are fabulous. Your chapter titles. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you. But it, it's very, you know, very stressful and takes go through many iterations. Um, and you know, Warren Dean, of course, as I mentioned, uh, called his book an environmental history. Uh, but I, I ended up setting settling on ecological history. Um, for a couple of reasons. And the first is that I set out to write a history of uh, interactions and processes. And the popular, I would say, understanding, um, even a, a very historical understanding of um, ecological, ecological as an adjective, is much more about the processes, right? Whereas environmental um, suggests perhaps something more static, like a landscape, um, like a, uh, you know, something just around ambient kinds of, of, of factors. Now, that's not to say that environmental histories are, are, are static. They are, they are much, they are very processual and, and they look at things. But I thought eco- ecology would um, bring to, to, to the fore that relation, that emphasis. And there are also um, historical uh, reasons for this. Now, uh, one ecologist I cite in the book, a guy named uh, Jean Adam, uh, talked about colonial ecology and defined it as a study of connections. And this was in the 1930s. And so I think there's a, there's a reason, um, historical justification for that. Now, I have to say that, you know, I didn't set out to write a history of ecology, as in a history of the science of ecology in Vietnam. And I think that would be uh, um, a very interesting book, and I think one that needs to be written. Uh, but it was that was a that would be a, a sort of much narrower uh, definition. So when I'm talking about ecology or ecological history, I mean both the kind of popular, you know, um, 
general understanding of ecology is about connections. And then also what the science of ecology studies, which are these uh, interconnections among you know, humans and non-humans, or more recently humans, but especially among non-humans and ecosystems and processes. So that that's why I chose ecological. Okay, that's great. So that's why you chose ecological history. So why rubber? And what did you hope to achieve by using rubber as a way to explore 20th century Vietnamese history? Yeah. Um, so I guess there are both uh, personal and academic reasons for this. Uh, rubber, the, the personal side is that when I taught English in Vietnam, I spent the first year and a half in a place called uh, Bien Hoa. And, um, you know, it's a, a now a much a growing city northeast of Saigon uh, in the 60s. Uh, it was a U.S. Air Force base, uh, has some terrible uh, Agent Orange dioxin uh, related issues left from that time. Um, but it also, during the colonial era or the 20th century, was a center of rubber production. It was one of the first places that rubber expanded to uh, after uh, starting in Saigon. And so when I was living there in 1999 to 2001, of course, there were no rubber trees in the city anymore. Those are long gone. But if you take the bus to go from uh, Binois to uh, Dalat or up into the Central Highlands, uh, you will uh, pass through some uh, rubber plantations still. And to me, that was fascinating. I mean, I'd never seen rubber. It was, you know, I'd grown up in Southern California, so I'd seen orange groves when I was when I was growing up and uh, things like that. Um, but uh, rubber was a new thing, and and you know, just. Uh, something that I was I was very interested in, but I, I kind of filed it away, um, didn't know what I was going to do with it. And then when I came back to graduate school and uh, was tossing around uh, for a topic, uh, I was uh, very influenced by uh, some works on, um, you know, uh, thinking about uh, labor and uh, history of medicine and environmental history um, that had been uh, coming out in the U.S. context. And it, it, it just struck me that rubber was one of these places where uh, you had this this agriculture plus, you know, human uh, labor uh, plus interactions with nature uh, and over a long time period, you know, the 20th century um, and a very prominent uh, uh, also endeavor so lots of archives, which as a historian is quite useful uh, to have to have those. And you know the advantage of having been there um, uh, teaching English, I still knew some people and have felt that it would uh, be helpful to to go back there. Oh yeah, the personal connection is fantastic. Yeah, and, and so important in, in Vietnam. Yeah, right. I I mean I I feel so lucky because I you know some of the few people I was able to talk to who were still living from the, the colonial era from the 1950s who had worked on rubber plantations. Uh, I met them because uh, thanks to Vietnamese language teachers and uh, friends from uh, Bien Hoa who, you know, I would have never been able to track down these people, but they, they knew these people. Um, so, and, you know, and then at the time when I started also there, there really uh, wasn't, you know, there's kind of the standard accounts of Martin Murray's book uh, chapter from the 1980s, an article in the 1990s, and 
uh, Chen Tubin's work on on rubber. So, I, you know, I just felt that that story had become a little bit ossified, and people just talked about rubber, and then and that was it. Then they moved on, right? Um, and and in the French literature, I think it's a, it was a little bit more lively. Uh, Christophe Bonnet, who's uh, wrote a a very uh, brilliant chapter on rubber, on his, you know, he wrote a dissertation on French agronomy, um, really inco- incorporating uh, Foucault into uh, you know, thinking about, uh, agriculture and, uh, that was kind of an inspiration, but, uh, you know, his, his work hadn't really, um, had much effect, uh, on Vietnamese studies, at least at, in, mm-hmm. in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it, it, the book fills a great spot in the uh, historiography. Um, just one quick question about the, the title and the framing of the, the time period. Why do you set the, uh, the years of your study as 1897 to 1975? Yeah, so um, I wanted to have a long time frame, uh, at least uh, you know as as, uh, as long as possible uh, to look at many different changes. And uh, eighteen ninety seven is uh, just simply put when uh, the first samples of uh, rubber are sent to uh, Vietnam, uh, or let's say the first heavier Brazilianses trees are. Um, uh, shipped to Vietnam, at least, you know, that's, uh, what's recorded. Uh, and, and Hevia brasiliensis is the species of tree from Brazil that gets transferred to, uh, or stolen from Brazil by a guy named Henry Wickham and then spread in the, the British empire. Uh, it was an act of uh, espionage, correct? Oh yeah. Yeah. No, it was, it was <laughs> heroic from the British point of view, but, uh, uh, Joe Jackson has a nice book that, you know, shows, uh, and others show basically how it's, it's bio theft <laughs> and he knew it, he knew it at the time. Right. <laughs> um, so that, that rubber tree, this is also occurring at the height or, or the, the depth of the horrors of the Belgian Congo in 1897, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. At the same time. Yes. Uh, absolutely. And, and, the horrors of the Belgian Congo, uh, the, the peak of Amazonian rubber, uh, wild rubber uh, gathering and production, and the just the, the point when uh, rubber in Southeast Asia is about to take off uh, on plantations. So um, in the Dutch East Indies and British Malaya, especially. Um, and then 1970... 1897 really is a global moment for yeah. the rubber production from wild collecting into plantations that take a few years to come online but we have this again this global moment of uh, of change in regards to rubber correct absolutely i would say maybe you know the 1890s right and mm-hmm. um and and it takes a while for the rubber industry to take off in in vietnam and, and then later cambodia because uh, french investors are actually more interested in just putting their money into um uh, british uh, plantations um, and Dutch plantations at first. And so, uh, you know, it takes actually until the 1910s and 1920s for rubber in Vietnam to to really take off. Um, but the 1897 point marks also some of the early discussions of how to uh, create the conditions for rubber, right? And already it's, it's, there's some interest in some idea that rubber might take off. And so, uh, you know, it's the the examples being set by the British and the Dutch. So the French start to to think about that. Um, and then, of course, 1975 is the the ending point uh, of the 
Vietnam War and a time when um, also known as the American War in Vietnam. <laughs> oh yes, absolutely the American War in Vietnam. Um, the, the Americans are largely gone by you know by then. Uh, there's a you know a few uh, hardy souls and um, people who are you know evacuating um, themselves right up at the end. Um, but uh, you know, 1975 uh, from from the Vietnamese perspective is the year in which, uh, well, reunification and whether you call it the liberation of Saigon or the fall of Saigon happens. Um, that's when uh, the um, socialist uh, regime in the north, the communist regime, uh, actually takes physical control of the plantations, right? And so for in terms of plantations, that's a new chapter. And I think that there's actually work, a lot of work left to be done on the post-1975 to the present uh, in terms of rubber plantations. But my my book was already too long, and so I need to stop. <laughs> 1975 was a moment in which there was a very big transition that, um, you know, there wasn't room to cover. And is there an archival issue around the date of 1975? I mean, I my work is much earlier in the 20th century. And I, in the archives, I couldn't look at anything after 1954 um, for, uh, for working on Honan in northern Vietnam. So after 1975, are the archives less open? Actually, interestingly, not. Um, and this is where uh, perhaps choosing a topic like rubber gave me uh, an entree in the sense that I one of the things that I, I was really interested in doing was uh, looking at the archives in, in Hanoi. Um, archives, well, number one for the colonial era, which uh, I know you have extensive experience in, and archives number three for the uh, post-1945, uh, post-1946 era, uh, which gather the Viet Minh and then the DRV records. And actually, I, I was told <laughs> by uh, someone working at the archives when I first showed up and I told my, I told him my topic was rubber and he's like, Oh yeah, no, there's, there's nothing on rubber in here. Uh, you know, this is archives number three. We, we, we don't have anything on rubber. Um, of course, uh, turns out that there were things on rubber. Um, the Hanoi, uh, Viet Minh and Hanoi was, was, uh, keenly interested in, in rubber for reasons that, are in the book, uh, and and had some uh, documentation that uh, proved you know interesting, um, and that continued up until until nineteen seventy five. Um, actually, most of the documentation at archive number one in terms of rubber uh, was from the first Indochina War, um, and then for the the Vietnam War, the the American War in Vietnam. Um, a lot of that material uh, was held in uh, the archives in the South, uh, so archive number two in Saigon, and the uh, National Archives in the U.S., uh, so the, the archives in College Park. Um, and so uh, that, you know, those records brought me up until 1975. Now, in fact, after 1975, there are records of the nationalized uh, communist controlled rubber companies um, sitting in archives number two that, as far as I know, have really not been looked at. 
And uh, that would be, again, I think an interesting project just to go through. And I, you know, I sampled some of those um, archives just to kind of get a sense of where uh, plantations were, uh, how they were functioning during, um, you know, the economic embargo era, um, pre-Doimai, post-Doimai, pre, you know, 1986, post-1986. But really just a smattering of, uh, I looked at a smattering of records and I think a a kind of systematic study of those um, archives held national in, in two archive center two would be um, quite interesting. Well, I hope there's some graduate students listening whose ears just perked up. They may have a, a dissertation project can follow in the, in your footsteps here. <laughs> trying to sell it. Um, yeah. <laughs> so do you see this book as fitting into the growing field of commodity history, such as Sven Beckert's empire of cotton or uh, Kurlansky's pop histories of salt and cod and, so many other books on things like oil, spices, wood, and so forth. Or is this something other than commodity history? Yeah, yes and no, I would say. I, you know, I sent out, as I said, to write a environmental or ecological history of Vietnam. But um, the question at the beginning was what to specifically concentrate on. And rubber, rubber plantations uh, seem to be a good way, a good topic, in part because they tapped into... Uh, several existing conversations and, and bodies of literature and could inject something new. So I saw that commodities literature as part of that, uh, as one of the conversations where rubber uh, had been talked about a lot, um, but also could be talked about in environmental terms. Um, and I was actually a bit cautious about fo- focusing on a commodity, partly because I wasn't, I'm, you know, my training wasn't in commodity history. Um, I, you know, it wasn't set out to do that. That's not, you know, what I was really thinking about. Um, and it, you know, some of the popular histories of commodities, I, th- I, I thought it kind of hit its peak, <laughs> you know, that salt and cod stuff and, uh, didn't really do it for me. So, um, I, you know, I was, I was suspicious, I think of commodities as a, as an approach, uh, but then also, you know, right when I was starting grad school, I read um, Bill Cronin's uh, classic Nature's Metropolis and some of the, you know, approaches in environmental history that have followed that that use commodities as a jumping off point to talk about ecological processes. So I think I think there are types of commodity histories that work can work very well environmentally. I think you can also do a commodity history that has nothing to do with the environment. And I, you know, I wanted to. So I, I was trying to do. Uh, the commodities, the history that had a lot to do with uh, the environment. Um, now, like I said, I, I also got lucky in the sense that um, commodities is one of these sort of uh, recurring uh, topics. And there was a um, fellowship, postdoc fellowship at the Institute of Historical Studies at University of Texas, Austin, uh, to work on the history of commodities. And so uh, I really uh, lucked out. This is while I was writing my book in 2014-15. And so I was able to work with um, the uh, Institute's then director, was a, a historian of Brazil named Seth Garfield, who was working on a history of the Amazon that uh, centered around uh, uh, rubber and it was, you know, during World War II. And he was um, doing a lot with environmental history. So he was very helpful uh, to... To, to talk with 
Yeah, so mm-hmm. I, you know, that's that was my approach, and I do have to say though, too, fun in in also in interesting ways, um, commodity like rubber at least, especially I think it wasn't very like, and and probably won't be very hot as a as a as a topic, and so um, I was happy to do something where I I wasn't necessarily stepping on other people's toes, and so it wasn't something that was uh, kind of time sensitive in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Well, I mean, I, I think that one of the many uh, achievements of the book is the way that it can appeal to a, a wide range of readers, those interested in Vietnamese history, environmental, ecological history, labor history, commodity history. So it it, it, it satisfies many uh, different uh, constituencies, so to speak. Um, so I'm going to ask you to walk us through the book. Uh, you have it organized into three sections, Red Earth, Gray Earth, Forest Without, Bur- Without Birds, Rubber Wars, and these are of one, three, and three chapters, respectively. And what's great is these chapters are both chronological, but also thematic. But before we get through the uh, the actual book, let's let's spend a little bit of time in the plantations. And can you briefly tell us about the plantations? Where were they in Vietnam and Cambodia? Why were they situated on these sites? And, and what, what's the ideal terrain for a rubber plantation? So the rubber uh, plantations start uh, in around 1897 on experimental stations. Um, there's a, a couple uh, near, fairly near Saigon, uh, one in uh, Nha Trang where uh, your, uh, Alexander Yersen, uh, one of the famous uh, colonial medical doctors, has set up a, a Pasteur Institute. Um, but the the majority of rubber uh, begins in the 19, uh, 1900s and 1910s on the gray earth, uh, what we call gray earth soil or gray soils surrounding uh, Saigon and even part of Saigon. And if I remember uh, correctly, there was even, I think it was a, a convent in Saigon that was using growing rubber uh, to uh, earn some, some cash uh, to, you know, help themselves financially. So you could actually find rubber trees within the city uh, limits in the early 20th century. Um, and the same was true of uh, Bien Hoa. And now these ecologically, uh, these soils are, uh, these gray earth soils are composed mostly of river deposits uh, from the Saigon River, uh, from the uh, uh, Dong Nai River, and uh, lots of sand, which gives them their, their gray character. So they uh, drain uh, well, uh, fairly easily, uh, but they don't have a lot of nutrients. And one of the problems with rubber trees is also that they often, uh, especially when they're very young, uh, blow down uh, in storms. And so when uh, heavy winds would pass through, um, these grayer soils would uh, not hold the trees uh, down very efficiently. Um, Now, of course, these early uh, efforts, rubber planting on the gray earth happened because the uh, of the infrastructure that was needed to collect the latex, to process it, uh, 
you know, once you have the sort of uh, tappers uh, draining the trees and collecting the latex, it has to be uh, mixed with uh, some various chemicals, including acetic acid to coagulate um, and then have it dried out uh, and then shipped off. And, and almost all, all of the rubber produced in Saigon was just shipped to Singapore, where it was uh, joined the, the market there and bought and sold uh, by, by the world uh, market. So um, Saigon offered the port and the facilities, and so did Bienhua uh, in, the, in the early uh, years. Also, it happens that labor uh, is uh, more available at this time in those places, uh, local labor, people, Vietnamese who are living there. Uh, and a lot of the early planters are uh, people who are uh, higher up in colonial society. So uh, French engineers or retired engineers, retired government officials. Um, one way to think of this is the uh, image of the planter uh, Mata uh, in the film uh, Indochine, which uh, Catherine Deneuve uh, plays a character, uh, right? The plantation um, owner. And that's her character in the, in the film is based on Madame de la Suchère, who is uh, the, the, the wife of a planter owner who dies, uh, of a planter who dies, and then she takes over the plantation. Um, so that's a kind of like the model of the early 1910s plantation. But as those lands are taken and the rubber boom um, of the 1920s uh, takes off, and you have you know, a lot of multinational co uh, companies start to move in. So you have the French and the Belgians uh, coming in and they are looking for uh, large tracts of land. And uh, this is where the, you know, the governing uh, uh, and economic logic uh, come together to push plantations out onto uh, what are largely red earth uh, soils or red soils um, in near the, the foothills of the central highlands out into what's now Tainin or uh, Binzung uh, province, Damnai province, Binfuk, uh, sort of that, um, what's called uh, Damnambo or the, the uh, uh, southern, uh, east, southeast region. Um, and this, uh, these plantations kind of, they, they, they fulfill a dual function. They, they both uh, help the colonial government explore and, and what the colonial government wanted to do with the, the ethnic uh, peoples living there, the so-called Montagnards uh, in the region, including people uh, called the Steng and the Fom, uh, but also, um, you know, there are some uh, ethnic uh, Chinese out in the area. So um, the colonial officials, you know, they're always on a shoestring budget. And so the plantations kind of promise to give some uh, financial uh, incentive, a uh, way to extend government into these areas. And also, uh, you know, to to uh, develop or what's called at the time mise en valeur uh, to for the region to to bring this to the region, um, and of course the plantations are are interested in uh, earning profits and uh, fairly uh, in, you know cheap land um, in, in almost you know given away but very very cheap sold very very cheaply. Now the the big losers in this process as plantations move out and away from. Um, Saigon and uh, Binhua and the, the, that area to the Red Earth are both the groups living in the region, as you can imagine, and also the laborers on these new uh, plantations. And so the groups living in uh, the region suffer 
from you know what we now what we call today land grabbing essentially so the you know the government uh colonial government uh sometimes professes you know to want to protect these groups and they they say look we we want to uh protect their land um but most of the time they're just either not willing to or not able to protect uh they weren't uh, able to do that and so uh, these these groups uh, were all, you know largely at the mercy of uh, plantations. Uh, another reason why these groups were uh, so uh, kind of easily targeted is that their agricultural system was largely based on Sweden agriculture, and you know Sweden agriculture is this process of uh, cutting down trees, burning them, uh, and then uh, uh, planting things on that on the burned plots, and then uh, moving every uh, couple of years through uh, cycles, basically that travel through the forest. In sharp contrast to um, wet rice agriculture, which is settled and the same rice paddies are worked for uh, generations, if not centuries. Correct. Yes, absolutely right. And and you know because of that contrast, the the law is actually not set up. Uh, land ownership is not set up to recognize uh, in the same ways. Um, the Sweden agricultural ownership of land and rice agriculture. Now, of course, rice agriculture, as as Brochure and others have shown, is that um, you know those lands can be easily stolen as well. Uh, but with Sweden agriculture, um, you have you know low population densities. Uh, you have also this idea that Sweden uh, is uh, ecologically uh, disastrous, and so. You see foresters, uh, Frederick Thomas has shown how foresters at the time argued that Sweden uh, lost, you know, what would cost the colonial state uh, wood and, and resulted in erosion. And so um, the, you know, the colonial government was uh, pressured by that argument. Of course, it's ironic because the, the very same practices that, you know, foresters were complaining about in terms of Sweden were used to create plantations themselves, right? Uh, you would... How would the plantation be created? Well, they would cut down the forest, burn it, and then plant rubber trees, right? Uh, you know, the only difference might be in terms of erosion. But, um, you know, and often the same people are doing that, that cutting and burning. So, 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 but you have this, you know, forester idea that um, the, the, the Swinon is bad uh, and the planters are arguing that there are, there's nobody on these lands um, even though they know that's not true, and so the you know the people who are living there um, essentially most of the time lose out um, their lands to these plantations. Now, in yeah, terms, this all, this all gets us yeah. into uh, chapter one, which is civilizing latex. Um, that's the title, chapter one, civilizing latex. So, what what does this chapter tell us about plantation agriculture and French visions of modernity? You've, you've been touching on this, but if you could just really lay this out, how did how did the French see their plantations? Yeah, um, so that that's I think that uh, you know the, I want to get with the the idea of civilizing uh, and and really bring that up in terms of latex because uh, again of this this uh, dual uh, you know use of uh, plantations to both extend uh, government and uh, infrastructure into uh, this uh, region of Vietnam that had been uh, largely, you know, left alone by the colonial state in, until the early 20th century. Um, and 
uh, you know, this sort of economic project, right? So in the first chapter, I'm arguing that the plantations both uh, benefit from uh, interest in this region and uh, attempts to uh, create infrastructure, roads, new roads uh, into the region. Um, you have rivers and, and those are useful uh, for the early transport, um, but you, you still need uh, road uh, networks. Um, and on the you know uh, reverse side, the plantations are helping to uh, extend governance uh, into these regions. And so, uh, you know, by setting up and what, what often happens is that these plantations become uh, states within states. And, and sometimes colonial officials complain about this, that, you know, they, they interfere actually with road building and, and other uh, colonial laws because they're so, uh, such, so much like uh, uh, fortresses. Um, but this initial uh, uh, movement into the Red Earth region is really driven by um, both ideology, uh, right, mise en valeur, civilizing mission, um, and the the practicalities of uh, latex and the, the economics of making a profit. So that's that's where I'm going with the, the first chapter and showing the kind of the the transition from um, what you can say as a pre plantation landscape to a post plantation landscape. Yeah, which feeds right into the uh, the next question about I have for you about the the title of the second section. Uh, it's this interesting title: Forest Without Birds. Where did the term come from, and, and why did you pick it? And what does it what does it mean? So um, the the term actually comes from uh, the exact term "forest without birds" comes from uh, Justin Godard, who is a, a former uh, French minister of health, um, and he visits plantations. He visited plantations in the 1930s in uh, French Indochina as part of his fact finding mission uh, for the Commission Garnu. And so he, you know, and this is this is something his his notes have been published in in French, and this is a, a poetic description that he comes up for the plantations, because uh, he's you know he's somewhat worried by the the uh, the the nature on these plantations. He can't quite put a put a hand, finger on it, but um, he's he's you know unsettled by uh, what's going on here and. The problem, I, I thought there was a very nice description for plantations, forests without birds. Um, it also, you know, refers to sort of uh, ways that plantations now are often, um, planters try to uh, count them, companies try to count them as forests uh, for carbon emission purposes. Um, but, you know, they, of course, they're, they're plantations, so it's nothing to do with each other. Um, but a lot of people said that that title was way too abstract uh, for the book and that people would expect more birds in the book so and of course there, there are not too many birds in the book um so, oh, so I went, you, you played with that as a as a book a book title oh, that's great yeah I, yeah I, I, I love the term because you know it, pre, it prefigures rachel carson so it has this link to uh you know people more familiar with american environmental history and uh i, I found it such a uh so fascinating um in the in chapter two, which is the first sec- first chapter in this section, um, it's titled "Cultivating Science." What are what are you talking about here when you speak of cultivating science? So the agricultural sciences, uh, things like well at the time called agronomy, and, and um, were really established in French Indochina about the same time that 
uh, rubber plantations are being created. So you have to start to have uh, schools, experimental stations. And so I argue in that chapter that uh, the colonial economy, uh, colonial agronomy and colonial plantations are uh, inextricably linked uh, at that time um, and, and through that, that process. And I, I use the term rubber science uh, to, to refer to those two. And this rubber science then uh, structures the understandings of rubber. It uh, encourages uh, large foreign uh, plantations uh, to come in and um, you know, grow rubber. Uh, most of the science that's being produced is uh, useful for uh, large monocultures rather than uh, smallholders. So there's not much, uh, really no uh, outreach in the early 20th century to try to promote, uh, say, uh, Vietnamese smallholders of rubber, um, a process that happens in the Dutch East Indies uh, and uh, British Malaya to a much larger degree. Um, and so that capture in some sense of of the two the agriculture colonial agriculture and um, colonial plantations is not broken until anti-colonial and independence movements right and so that's that's really that forms the the, the basis of that I also uh, put this chapter here uh, because this is the you know the kind of next step in forming a plantation right so you have the kind of the first the initial conditions and in chapter one, and then uh, what do you have to do next? Or what do the rubbers do? Ne- rubber planters uh, do next. They they uh, gradually accept the the necessity of of um, uh, agricultural science in their endeavors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then uh, in chapter three, we see another uh, issue that uh, science has to attend to, and, and medicine has to attend to, and that's the impact of various diseases, especially malaria. Can you say a few words on the history of disease and um, what did the French planters uh, and the, more importantly, the Vietnamese laborers face on the plantation in terms of disease? Yeah. Um, so the, uh, as you, as you know, history of medicine is a, a quite a important topic in uh, colonial history. And uh, in terms of the plantations, uh, this is r- really the, um, you know the the kind of as plantations move out to the red earth region, uh, malaria becomes a huge problem, and um, it, you know it's 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 a disaster uh, in in the 1920s. In uh, this um, happens for uh, a few reasons. So first of all, uh, these areas in the the red earth region, uh, which are farther from the urban centers of Saigon and Bienhua are um, generally, uh, you know, have more uh, either primary or secondary uh, growth forest. So uh, they have to be uh, cleared to uh, create a plantation. And while some of this clearing work is done by uh, uh, montagnards who are, you know, accustomed to, more accustomed to this kind of work, uh, a lot of it is done by uh, Vietnamese laborers. And um, as the plantation's uh, get established in the red earth region, uh, they have almost an insatiable demand for for labor, right? More than uh, can be provided through the south uh, alone, and so the planters uh, try to uh, try many different solutions to try to import laborers. Um, uh, some they even try to import them from Java, from the Dutch East Indies, 
uh, from other places in, in Southeast Asia. Um, but what the planners finally settle on is uh, encouraging uh, migration from northern Vietnam and uh, north central Vietnam. And these migrants, uh, you know, another kind of advantage for the planters of creating these large plantations out in the middle of nowhere is that uh, they can largely charge uh, whatever they uh, they can largely pay whatever they want uh, for for uh, labor only you know minimally regulated by the state. Um, they also laborers have very little recourse. Uh, it's very hard to leave these plantations in the middle of nowhere, uh, far from uh, relations uh, that the, the laborers have, and the the natural I would say the the non human nature part of this equation is that these red earth soils are very ecologically very different from the gray earth soils. So uh, these red earth soils are um, made from De, uh, decaying volcanic deposits, and so they uh, contain a lot of clay, uh, which means that they are they are more uh, nutrient rich, but they also don't drain uh, very well. And so when uh, you know, and I, I explain this in the book, but when the uh, forests are cut down, uh, you have large standing puddles of water. Of course, it's raining you know a lot in this region. Uh, large puddles of water. Uh, perfect breeding uh, spaces for uh, species, particular species of mosquitoes, and actually the, the 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 timing makes a difference in when you go from deforestation to um, you know uh, unforested land to reforested or replantation uh, land, and uh, along with the um, background occurrence of uh, uh, Plasmodia uh, falciparum in, in the populations, local populations, the ethnic minorities, uh, all of these come to come together and you have what are called at the time epidemics of malaria. And, um, you know, in the, especially in 19, late 1920s, uh, you know, some, some months you have up to 50% of the plantation workforce uh, die from uh, diseases. And it's not just malaria, obviously it's just because they're weak, they're underfed, they're overworked. Uh, and you know their their the housing is, is shoddy and terrible, um, but the thing that you know finally kills them uh, is is often malaria. And so we you know I think as historians talk a lot about um, what you know David Del Testis wrote to me and you know once the the lick of the whip as being the most important thing in the plantations and um, it's very picturesque, but actually the uh, malaria. Uh, that occurs in the 1920s is um, more the real, the real killer. Yeah, right? yeah. Enabled yeah. by yeah. the plantations, of course. Right, but right. The real the, killer. Uh, colonial modernization projects creating unintended health con- uh, crises. Hmm. Huh? Where do we see that? <laughs> another, another, another great <laughs> book topic. Okay, chapter four is called "Turning Tropical," and it considers the transformation of colonial science. You've touched on this uh, previously, but could you just say a few words on that and what your argument is in this chapter? So, you know, if, if you're looking at the book as kind of layer upon a layer of, of um, history, right? The past. This is uh, this is the the chapter in which I uh, look at a, a layer that uh, marks the shift in in some ways from uh, colonial science to uh, what's more often called tropical science. 
Um, and this occurs in both uh, medicine and agriculture, which I examine. Um, but, you know, to uh, geography, right, to tropical geography, Pierre Guru is part of the shift. You can see it in ecology, tropical ecology. And in this chapter, um, I, I trace out the, I, and I argue that older uh, uh, racial categories that were so prominent in the colonial sciences um, are imported into the tropical sciences. And although tropics, the tropical sciences um, speak more about the environment, um, they speak more about uh, you know, populations and um, things that I, I would say are less overtly racial in their uh, conception, uh, they are still uh, informed by uh, colonial practices, obviously during uh, the 1930s, these are still very much uh, uh, colonial sciences, um, and that you know that that carries on in, in that tradition. So um, I'm looking at the ways in which, um, in some ways, uh, tropical medicine and agriculture are responding to uh, uh, emerging out of uh, efforts to respond to plantations as phenomena. The final section has three chapters, uh, the first of which is entitled Maintaining Modernity. And this chapter talks about the role of the plantations in the first Indochina War, the Vietnamese struggle for independence from the French. Um, what can you tell us about the role of plantations in this war? So um, the role of plantations uh, is, and what I argue in this chapter, is that they uh, they have become landscapes that start to shape uh, political and, uh, well, military in the sense, uh, activity. And um, they are, uh, have been established and, and really you, you see the implications of what it means to have uh, plantation uh, agriculture in, uh, in Vietnam. And that's both true symbolically and materially. So uh, symbolically, the plantations are again still viewed by the French as being super modern. Um, uh, Paul Mousse talks about this in his his book, uh, you know, Sociology of a War, uh, and the French can point to hospitals and this kind of infrastructural modernity that uh, colonialism is supposed to bring to uh, to French Indochina to uh, to Vietnam, um, but. The uh, argument uh, that the Viet Minh are making is that these uh, plantations are symbolic of colonial horrors, and this includes labor abuse. This includes the uh, taking of colonial uh, resources, the taking of resources, even if they're either natural or uh, created resources, out of Vietnam uh, and enriching the the metropole. Um, and so there's a there's a big struggle there in in terms of that symbolic understanding of plantations. Now this actually uh, leads into military strategy uh, during the first Indochina War from the documents I, I was looking at in the archives number three, where initially in 1946, 47, 48, the Viet Minh leaders see uh, adopt a, a scorched earth policy, and uh, Pierre Brochet has argued about this. Uh, for, or other places in Vietnam, and the idea is to, to burn it down, right? And it's kind of an anarchist approach to um, to colonialism. Just uh, get rid of everything and start anew, wash it away in blood. 
right? And this works for a while. Um, and, but, you know, as, as the war goes on, and especially in the South and the plantations there, the Viet Minh are not doing uh, super uh, well. Um, so there's, there's that aspect of it. Uh, but then also in, in around the 1950s, um, at least for plantations, now this may be true of other uh, economic uh, infrastructure, other economic projects or not, but at least for plantations, you see a shift in the rhetoric. And the, the Viet Minh start to talk about the need to uh, preserve this economic infrastructure because it will become national, right? And um, whether that's for, uh, you know, a growing sense of um, perhaps optimism that the French will eventually leave, um, you know, the, the victory of the PRC, the, the People's Republic of China in uh, 1949, and, you know, sort of the, the growing resources that the Viet Minh have, um, there's this idea, though, that starts to, at least in the, among the leadership, uh, per, uh, circulate that you can take the plantations for hostage, you can you know, take rice, you can take medical, medical equipment, you can even take latex and sell it on the black market, um, or you can, you can burn latex, but don't necessarily destroy the trees, because those will be uh, what uh, is left over. And that's, you know, when the Viet Minh take control of the country. Um, They'll need to have some kind of economic, uh, you know, infrastructure to to rebuild and to run the country. Um, now, this is not necessarily making it. These ideas are not necessarily making their way down to the ground level and the cadre on the on the you know in the plantation. So you do still see, obviously, uh, sabotage and all kinds of activities taking on, but the. The idea is to push towards more of a kind of um, drawing from the resources of the plantations without uh, completely and ma- making the French want to leave without completely destroying them. The other way that plantations are shaping the first Indochina war is you already start to have um, the Viet Minh realizing that they're, they are actually a very useful um, fighting space. And so um, French planters are encouraged by the French military to, you know, build towers and control the plantation space. And they're told by the French military that they have to pay for all of that. Um, But that is not a super effective way to run a plantation. And, you know, because plantations are so big, because they were encouraged to be so big during the colonial era, they're actually really hard to control, um, especially along the fringes. So, you know, if you've ever been on a plantation, uh, you can't see you know, you don't have unfettered horizontal sight. Uh, you don't have, uh, uh, you can't see from above if the, if the leaves are there. So it's hard to survey from planes. Um, and so this, uh, the, the, you know, fighting is different than it is during the Vietnam war, but still the, the plantations can and start to begin to serve as these, um, you know, places of refuge and, and, uh, places where the Viet Minh, uh, can start to uh, take advantage of the, the plantation uh, space. So this takes us into uh, chapter six, which is decolonizing plantations. And this is the, the fate of the plantations once the war was over. So uh, Vietnam is no longer under French rule. What happens to these former French plantations? Or should I say, do they become former French plantations in post-colonial Vietnam and South Vietnam? No, largely no. Um, there uh, are 
Of course, some Vietnamese who uh, get into ownership uh, of plantations after the first Indochina War. Uh, there's, uh, especially under Ngo Dien Diem after 1954, uh, there's a rhetoric of national uh, development. There's a rhetoric of uh, Vietnamese owning uh, economic um, you know, infrastructure in, in uh, South Vietnam and the Republic of South Vietnam. Um, but by and large, the plantations remain, especially the large plantations, remain in French hands. So uh, things like Michelin, um, there are other uh, plantation groups that uh, continue. Now, this is a problem in some ways for Ngo Dien Diem. He's very, he's very much caught between uh, the nationalist rhetoric um, that he's running and, and, you know, very much uh, believes and acts on uh, in a number of ways and uh, the need to maintain some kind of economic earnings for the Republic of Vietnam, um, especially in, as, as the National Liberation Front in the, in the 1960s, early 1960s, starts to ramp up its activity, uh, rice production starts to uh, decline quite uh, precipitously. And so rubber becomes, in the 1960s, uh, the number one earner. And the, in this way, the, the French, uh, especially the large plantations, are um, somewhat indispensable, right? Too big to fail under Ngo Dien Diem. Uh, and he can't really, uh, uh, even though he's uh, running the head of the government, he, he's limited in terms of the no- options he has. Um, and he always is reassuring the plantations that he's not going to nationalize them. Um, now this, uh, dynamic interacts with the arrival of the Americans and this, uh, new, you know, Cold War ideology of development, which a lot of historians have looked at in terms of South Vietnam and the importance of development ideology. Um, now most of those historians have focused on rice growing, uh, places, the Mekong Delta, the strategic hamlets. Only uh, really Stan Tan and uh, uh, has looked at the Central Highlands as a, a site of development ideology, um, and so the the rubber plantations are of course swept up into this ideology. Now, what is sh- this chapter shows is that older uh, influences of Maison Valère, development, civilizing mission, actually reform and continue to to. Uh, adjust the the development uh, project and and kind of influence its its execution in the 1960s, right? So the the pressures on Nodian Ziem, uh, these older ideologies that have formed certain relationships, ecological relationships in the land, um, make it difficult to run development in the way that development planners wanted to. So they you know development uh, Americans especially come in and say, look, you got to you got to make a lot of smallholders here, you know, 40 acres and a mule kind of ideology, right? And, and uh, in terms of farming in South Vietnam, and, and and that doesn't work for plantations. They are hard to change once they're in uh, in that kind of mode. Right, right. So it's so fascinating that the this uh, period, the late 1950s, is this, this golden age of the plantations because there's disaster on the horizon. And in your last full chapter, Militarizing Rubber, you talk about the impact of the steadily ramped up violence of uh, the American military in the Second Indochina War. 
So what's what's the fate of the rubber plantations during the American War from 1964, 1965 to uh, uh, January 1973? Uh, largely destruction. They are uh, become you know the the sites of fierce battles, uh, and even more than the first Indochina War during uh, the the Vietnam War, plantations are key strategic sites. So. Um, you, you have, the, and the reason for this is that they sit at the end of the Ho Chi Minh Trail, right? So you have the Ho Chi Minh Trail going through Laos, coming through Cambodia, and basically emptying out into South Vietnam. Uh, you know, it's a number of paths, obviously. It's not just, just one like unified trail, but um, largely emptying out like, you know, a river and a, and a delta uh, through the plantations. And so the, you know, the headquarters of the resistance uh, to, you know, the, the headquarters that's the Cosbin that's joining the uh, National Liberation Front and the North Vietnamese uh, commanding leadership is based in and around the, the rubber plantation region. Um, part of that is, again, because of the Ho Chi Minh Trail, the siding of the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Uh, another part of that is because they have the border there. So you have this Cambodia-Vietnam border, which Cambodia is technically neutral. And so the, you know, uh, the 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 communists use that uh, neutrality, and uh, of course, you know they're they're breaking the neutrality. Uh, U.S. is breaking the neutrality. The Republic of Vietnamese forces are breaking. The, everyone's breaking neutrality. But there's the border there that the 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 communists can slip back and forth on, um, and and you know it's joined by uh, these plantations. And so um, what the Americans and you see this in the archives from uh, national. Uh, archives in, in uh, College Park um, are really intent in uh, uh, taking out this plantation uh, uh, landscape from use, from Vietnamese use. And so they have, they, uh, you know, sometimes spray it with uh, herbicides, uh, commonly known as Agent Orange. And of course, the French uh, companies like Michelin sue <laughs> the U.S. government for doing that. Um, they uh, claim, uh, you know, military right of way, and they just they plow under rubber trees on the sides of roads, um, the in, including on Vietnamese plantations. And they Vietnamese try to get money for this, but they're um, the U.S. military is protected by uh, international law for not having to pay uh, much for these uh, war related damages. Um, and so, uh, you know, largely it's an assault on. Uh, the plantation landscape. And, you know, in terms of labor, you have the daily violence of the Vietnam War, where um, really many rubber workers talk about being caught between the communist at night and the uh, Republic of Vietnamese, uh, Vietnam government during the day. And so um, rubber workers are, you know, there are many who are active in the communist movement, but there are many who just are are either neutral or, you know, um, don't want to get involved. And so uh, their lives become uh, extremely difficult. And uh, it's, you know, as, as plantation after plantation starts to shut down because of uh, violence into the 1970s, uh, work, rubber workers have uh, very little uh, options in terms of how they're going to earn a living. And so um, you have this, uh, you know, growing number of unemployed um, workers who have to be find find their their livelihood yeah and and the communist party has a somewhat uh complicated relationship with the rubber workers unions correct yes they they do uh 
there is a, um, you know, the, the, the communist party, uh, really likes to point towards its, um, its management, uh, and, and support from the rubber workers. And, um, and, and, you know, there are times when the rubber workers, uh, find it advantageous to, to emphasize this, uh, this, this, um, mixing of, of communism and rubber worker activity. Um, but there's definitely, uh, uh, rubber active rubber worker activism and labor strikes that exist outside the framework of the communist uh, rubber unions, and so you can see, uh, you know, some of the different, uh, many many different unions organized at this time, and um, some of the rubber worker unions are organized by Chun uh, Kukbu and uh, you know the Catholic workers and the more general um, South Vietnamese unions. Uh, some are organized by the the communist led unions um but it's it's by no means uh are all the rubber workers organized under the uh, communist uh, driven communist controlled unions labor unions mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so which leads me to my my final question on the book um and by way of conclusion you discuss rubber in post war vietnam so how did a united Vietnam under Communist Party rule deal with plantation agriculture as a system of production, especially considering that the um, the party spent so much time vilifying the plantations um, and condemning the plantations as the worst excesses of the colonial system? So how does the, how does the, the party now run plantations and and how important is rubber in contemporary the contemporary Vietnamese economy? Well, part of this uh, answer will come from the graduate student who looks at the archives for post 1975 rubber. I think the details are still, uh, you know, largely to, to be sketched out in many, many interesting insights. But um, in general, you see, even in the sixties, this uh, growing uh, attempt to appropriate the rubber plantations as both uh, national space, but as communist space, particularly in terms of the North Vietnamese government. And so, uh, you know, for example, you see um, money being put out where uh, rubber workers are working in a mechanized plantation landscape. Uh, you see um, uh, posters, uh, you know, uh, being produced that uh, call, uh, you know, rubber and, and sort of show how rubber can support a, a, a communist socialist government. Um, and so you you have that. Uh, growing uh, appropriation, symbolic appropriation, but then you have the real reality after 1975 that the plantations are in ruins, right? You have your your labor force is dispersed. Um, your the plantations have been heavily damaged by the war. Uh, you've lost most of your expertise in terms of rubber growing. You, there are a few experts like Dan Van Bin and uh, some you know planter. Uh, 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 rubber manager, Vietnamese rubber specialists who stay in Vietnam after 1975, but many many of them leave. Um, and so, rebuilding the the infrastructure and the labor force uh, is is very hard for uh, the the communist government. And um, not until the 1990s, and especially in the 2000s, uh, is the is the you know does rubber really become a force? And then it becomes uh, again, quite important in, in Vietnam. So obviously by the 2000s, Vietnam has a much different economy than it did in the 1960s and 70s and 80s. Um, and, and rubber is not the, the 
leading uh, export in South Vietnam. Rice is once again uh, that. It, but um, rubber generates, I mean, I think it's like two to three billion dollars a year at some points in the, the mid 2000s um, in, in, in earnings and especially uh, from selling to China. So this is, you know, when, when China's economy is really taking off, um, they're buying all the rubber they can and using it for all kinds of things. You know, now uh, a lot of natural rubber is used for very high, high quality things, uh, you know, medical gloves, um, airplane tires, uh, things that are involved, uh, yeah, much better quality of rubber. And a lot of the uh, low quality uh, uh, uses of rubber, things like motorbike tires and those kinds of things, um, are actually uh, synthetic rubber fulfills most of that demand. Um, are they importing the synthetic rubber? What's that? Are they importing synthetic rubber? You mean you mean Vietnamese? Yeah, is it? It's a synthetic imported into Vietnam, or are they also producing synthetic rubber? No, so uh, um, most of the rubber being produced in Vietnam is, is natural, and uh, most of the kind of processing of rubber is still taking place outside of Vietnam. So there are there are some, um, you know, tire manufacturing plants that are uh, springing up in Vietnam, which um, I, didn't, I haven't looked into this quite uh, a lot, but um, that that may be using some imported synthetic rubber. Um, but most of the Vietnam plantations are still producing the uh, the cash crop, the commodity, and then the value added work is being done elsewhere. Still to a large right? degree, right? Now, the the similarity, another similarity with the colonial era is that um, plantations also are becoming rubber plantations, in particular, are becoming um, these ways in which uh, Vietnamese government is able to expand influence into Laos and Cambodia. And so many of the same issues that arise when that arose when uh, French and Belgian plantations were expanding expanding into the Red Earth region uh, are recurring in Laos and Cambodia these days. So land grab and um, people being kicked off their land. It's it's uh, unfortunately you have an echo of that going on. One one of the things that I saw this year, I was I lived in uh, Cambodia for five months in uh, in Siem Reap, and one of the phenomenon is that there's a uh, dramatic increase in tourists uh, from the People's Republic of China, and one of the things that's uh, pitched to them is buying natural latex mattresses, and there's this whole um, industry of marketing locally produced uh, mattresses to uh, to Chinese tourists. Yeah. Wow. So um, that's, that's, we've taken up a lot of your time. I really appreciate that. It's been a fascinating conversation. But before we let you go, we've got one more question. And um, now this first book is done. What are you working on? So what can we hope to see from you in the near future? So I am building on some of the work in the first book and uh, taking it in a slightly different direction. I'm looking at, um, for a second uh, book project, uh, Vietnamese Efforts to uh, resist environmental warfare during the Cold War. And so I, you know, um, Jacob Hamlin has a book called Arming Mother Nature, which is uh, a few years old now, but he talks about environmental warfare um, and its occurrence. He references Vietnam was one of his chapters. And so I'm thinking that I will call it uh, Disarming Mother Nature, <laughs> but this is a provisional title right now. Um, but the, the point of the book would be, and this is how I have it in my mind right now, is that 
Um, you know, there's been work done on herbicides in, in Agent Orange and environmental warfare in Vietnam, but uh, little ex- has been done to explore, at least in English, um, the history to resist efforts uh, or to resist environmental warfare. And so one of my arguments is that these uh, efforts to resist environmental warfare from, uh, you know, looking at um, some archival material from the 1950s, um, is that it's, it's drawing on older ideas of coping with natural disasters and how you cope with uh, typhoons or floods. And so, you know, in order to cope with these, um, the you know, potential of biological warfare that the, the Americans or the French might use or uh, climate warfare that was used during the Vietnam War or um, herbicides, you can look to, um, you know, both, uh, you know, kind of contemporary ideas about hygiene and, and things, and but also older ideas about how to um, think about natural disaster or relief efforts. Um, and then on the other hand, this Envi- resistance to environmental warfare um, would, and I, you know, have to um, expand on this, but it also helps contribute to some environmental, early environmental consciousness in Vietnamese society, uh, such as it is. So one of the first moments when uh, people in Vietnam become aware that, uh, you know, uh, nature can be uh, uh, problematic in a, in a modern sense, I guess, pollution, chemicals, and things like that, um, is during, uh, sadly, the, the the Cold War when uh, Vietnamese society is, is largely the, the target of environmental warfare activities. Right. Well, that, that sounds fantastic. Uh, I can't wait to see that. Um, get to work so that we can get you back on the uh, on the podcast. And talk about that book. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mike. I would appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for your time, Mitch. Um, this was really, really a fascinating conversation about just a, just a great book. Yeah, thank you. I, I had a lot of fun. Yep, this has been a conversation with Professor Michitake Esso of State University of New York, Albany, about his new book, Rubber and the Making of Vietnam, an Ecological History, 1897 to 1975. I'm Michael Van of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you so much for listening.